Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Unfiltered. I have not one but two presidential candidates on the live show for you tonight both hoping to get the better of the guy in the Oval Office. And for him, I have tonight's headline. Good news, bad news. It's been an eventful week for President Trump, filled with highs and lows. In good news, Trump is headed to Orlando on Tuesday, where he'll officially kick off his re-election campaign. Trump says they've received 100,000 ticket requests for the 20,000-seat venue. In more good news, he gets to redesign Air Force One, the president's plane. And he revealed mock-ups of new color schemes. These sorts of things, as we know, are his favorite part of presidenting. But the bad news is he's still got to do some hard stuff. There's that immigration issue. Uh, U.S. officials say Iran just fired a missile at one of our drones before attacking two tankers in the Gulf of Oman. And there's that pesky trade negotiation. On Thursday, 600 companies, including Walmart, Costco and Target, warned the president that tariffs on China would seriously damage the U.S. economy, result in sweeping job losses and hurt millions of consumers. Better sort that one out, Mr. President. And more bad news, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Trump's trusted White House press secretary, announced she's leaving the job, a job she redefined over the course of her tenure by, well, not doing it. She gradually shortened the White House press briefings and then eventually canceled them all together. She'll be missed. But in good news, Trump says he's eager to fill the position and is not at all concerned about finding the right person for the job. He said, we have a lot of great people. We have a lot of people to choose from. We'll see. Some more good news. Trump is, quote, doing great in the polls, even better than in 2016, according to him in a tweet this morning. The bad news? No, he's not. The campaign's own internal polling has the president lagging in critical states like Pennsylvania and Michigan. The internal poll published by ABC News on Friday shows Trump trailing Joe Biden by huge margins in states he won in 2016. It shows Trump holding on in Texas by just two points against Biden, Texas. It also shows him trailing every Democratic presidential contender in head-to-head matchups. Trump's denied these findings and told his staff to do the same. Yesterday, his campaign claimed the leak numbers were outdated and, quote, meaningless. Okay, then, this is all normal. Moving right along, more good news. Trump gave a wide-ranging interview to George Stephanopoulos in which they discussed everything from the Mueller investigation to UFOs. Here is his take on that. Well, I think my great, our great pilots would know uh, and some of them really see things that are a little bit different than in the past. So we're going to see. But we'll watch it. You'll be the first to know. Yay. But though there's bad news, too, he's also in that interview admitting he'd probably take illegal information on his election opponents from foreigners. This is somebody that said, we have information on your opponent. Oh, 
Let me call the FBI. Give me a break. Life doesn't the work FBI that The FBI director says that's what should happen. The FBI director is wrong. Your campaign this time around, if foreigners, if Russia, if China, if someone else offers you information on an opponent, should they accept it or should they call the FBI? I think maybe you do both. I think you might want to listen. I don't, there's nothing wrong with listening. If somebody called from a country, Norway, we have information on your opponent. Oh, I think I'd want to hear it. You want that kind of interference in our elections? It's not an interference. They have information. I think I'd take it. It's called oppo research. <laughs> well, here's what the campaign finance law says. It shall be unlawful for a person to solicit, accept, or receive a contribution or donation described as money or another thing of value in connection with a federal, state, or local election from a foreign national. After two days of damage control, Trump sort of backpedaled during a call into Fox and Friends. If you don't hear what it is, uh, you're not right. going to know what it is. I mean, That's how right. can you report how something you know it's that bad you don't if you don't listen to it? So, Mr. President, I, no, no, they say, oh, right. he would he would accept it. Well, if I don't listen, you're not going to know. Now, if I thought anything was incorrect or badly stated, I'd report it to the attorney general, the FBI. I'd report it to law enforcement. Absolutely. Here's the deal. Trump's about to head into campaign mode as if he ever really left it. He'll hold huge rallies in which he'll colorfully and creatively slam the 2020 Democratic contenders. He'll lie about his polls or the Mueller investigation or the media. He'll boast about solving problems that he hasn't and in some cases that he created. And he may even from time to time accidentally tout his policy successes like tax reform, deregulation and record unemployment. We all know what's coming because we've seen it now for years. But unlike in the run-up to 2016, he's actually president now, and we still have real problems. All the tinkering with Air Force One paint colors won't make them go away. And Republicans seem far more interested in protecting Trump's 2020 re-election than in holding him accountable for the job he was elected to do in 2016. Here to discuss all the latest news, Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois. Welcome um, first, let's start with the biggest news of the week. And I don't mean the foreign dirt controversy, but I'll get to that. I think the biggest news of the week was this letter signed by 600 companies, including some of the biggest retailers like Walmart and Costco, begging the president to back down on Chinese tariffs. How seriously should he be heeding that warning? Well, I think you should take it seriously. But at the same time, first off, this is a fight we should add 20 or 30 years ago. And to be clear about that, because, you know, as China was more of a growing economy and we had less investment there. Uh, but there is so much that is done by the Chinese government, by Chinese companies to steal our intellectual property and everything. We have yeah. to stand up for it. So I think it's important for, for these retailers to send the message to, to be clear about what impact this is having. But I don't think that should be the thing that basically turns off the tariffs and have, a, have us back down, because I think we're in this deep enough now that we have to win. And by winning, I don't mean it, it, China loses everything. I just mean getting to a fair trade situation where we can actually treat each other as, uh, as companions, I guess, in trading yeah. and not so much as adversaries. But do you think that Trump is at risk of, of losing some voters over these tariffs, especially in states where agriculture, um, uh, you know, might might be hit real hard? Yeah, I, th I think there's always a risk. Uh, and I think the president knew that when he did it. Um, but look, like in my district, for instance, I have a lot of yeah. agriculture. We've been hit really hard with these rains and flooding. That's going to have as much of an impact as anything. Uh, yeah. But they are concerned about tariffs. But I'll tell you what's interesting I see is these farmers 
are saying, yes, it's hurting my bottom line. Yes, I don't like what's going on just from a bottom line perspective, but we're with the president and he needs to win. Where I got a little nervous is when you start talking into Mexico and some, you know, Europe and other things. That's where I think the president runs the risk of losing these Mm. farmers. When it comes to like China, I think they're on board and even even at their own bottom line right now. Okay, so let's go to the the foreign dirt story. I want to ask you a real simple question. Is what the president suggested taking oppo research from a foreign national legal or illegal? I think it's illegal. And if it's not, then we need to for sure define it as illegal. Uh, The question is, you know, the election law was a thing of value. Uh, My understanding is that is illegal uh, to take information like that. But again, if it's not, we need to put that in law. There is no point at which, and this isn't a matter, I don't want to like look back and say these people did it and then these people, I just think, okay, right now is a great time for us to just say, okay, going forward, nobody takes information from a foreign government because listen, just from a outside of what's right and wrong, they could shop the same kind of information to your opponent. But beyond that, we can't be a country influenced by another country in our election, period. Well, but Trump has faced very little rebuke from Republicans in Congress over saying his FBI director was wrong, over saying he'd take that illegal information. Senator Blackburn, in fact, blocked a bipartisan foreign interference bill. She was applauded for it on Twitter by Trump. So what, what, when are Republicans going to step in and make sure that this doesn't happen? Well, I, you know, I, look, if you talk to all of them kind of privately, we all agree. Here's the problem. What There's good does privately do? I, I'm so, I, and this is not against know, you, but let, I am me, so sick of hearing Republicans when they talk privately yeah. say one thing. What good does that do anyone? I agree, but here's the, here's the issue I'm getting at. So yeah. every day there's kind of a new outrage, and about 70% of them are, aren't any Trump's doing. I think it's stuff taken out of context. When it came to this information, for instance, I took a little bit of time to actually see all this set in context before I made a comment on it. And my comment is, you can't take foreign information from a foreign yeah. government. So, uh, yeah, look, I wish people would speak out more about stuff like this. I don't think, honestly, I don't think the president was soliciting foreign information. I think he was maybe being a little cute by half on this. But Hmm. at the point, realize that this is an outrage. You should simply say what's obvious to all of us. You can't take information from a foreign government. Well, so your colleague in the House, Justin Amash, um, as you know, publicly laid out his case for why he thinks the president committed impeachable offenses. Since then, he's resigned from the Freedom Caucus. He's down 16 points in his Republican primary. Kevin McCarthy slammed him by saying he questions whether he's a Republican anymore. Um, I'm sure you know Justin Amash is one of the most conservative voting records in the House. Is the new definition of Republican just undying loyalty to whatever Trump says or does? No, I don't think so. Uh, I actually, I never really considered Justin Amash a Republican in the beginning, and I'll explain why. I like him personally, right? But politically, he's a libertarian. Now, some libertarian views are welcome in the Republican Party, but he's a total libertarian. Once a smaller military votes against military budgets, votes against pro-Israel stuff, every, you know, basically anti-genocide resolution we have that comes up, he votes against, votes against every budget. So he never votes like me. Now, if you don't consider me a Republican, that's one thing, Mm -hmm. but I... I've never really considered many. I think he's a libertarian masquerading as a Republican. But that said, I, again, I like him personally. I'm just saying on the politics, I never really considered him that way anyway. Congressman Kinzinger, thanks, as always, for your time tonight. I appreciate it. You bet. See ya. The president's ABC interview caused some angst for the White House just in time for the press secretary to announce her departure. I'll look at that curious series of media events. And then as the 2020 campaign heats up, I'll speak to my candidate of the week about his plan not to leave the middle behind.
The three words just roll off the tongue like the start of a Wes Anderson film. Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Her exit after two years as Trump's press secretary at the end of the month has many in the media wondering what lies in store for them, or rather what lies are in store for them from the next press secretary. Regardless of which of the best people Trump puts in that job, it's safe to say no one in recent memory has had a bigger impact on the way the press and the White House interact than Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Joining me now to discuss our CNN chief media correspondent, Brian Stelter, and Republican strategist, John Braybender. Brian, you wrote about Sanders' legacy, uh, which you said was the death of the White House press briefing. Why do you think that matters so much? I think it matters as both a symbol as well as a practical example of government going dark. Uh, the public deserves as much transparency as possible. I would say that is true in every administration, Republican or Democrat. We always deserve more transparency than we get. Yeah. But to end the daily briefing uh, completely, it's been 96 days, is a symbol of closing up shop and not providing access. I know the, the White House says Trump tweets a lot. He answers questions from reporters a lot. It's not the same as having a spokesperson address the public yeah. every day. John, from a PR point of view or from a, you know, a comms point of view, we like to point out how often Sarah um, lied on behalf of the president. But the job description was, is, will always be the same. Hmm. Um, you know, what should we expect from the next person? Well, first of all, I don't, I don't think anything's going to change. But what, what yeah. we have to understand is what has changed is the game. You know, there is no judge anymore. If this or a referee. Okay. The press is now a player on the field. If, as a strategist and, okay. a, and a media consultant, yes. I look at this and I look at it as whether I'm a Democrat or Republican, it is much more adversarial. And a lot right. of this mm -hmm. has to do with how the news is now reported. If you're a millennial, if you're Generation Z particularly, you're going online, you're going to Twitter, you're going to all these yep. places now. And so what's driving the news cycle are tweets and retweets and FaceTime on TV and all these things, and it has dramatically changed. I would argue that the press briefing has become totally obsolete. Well, but is it a chicken or the egg? What's driving the news cycle or the president's tweets? Because that's where we hear from him most often. If he were talking to the press more, maybe his press briefings or the White House press briefings would be more part of the news. Yeah, maybe in a world where there's more news, more information, and more confusion, we should actually have more briefings, not fewer, not just from the White House, but from the Pentagon, the State Department, and other departments. Briefings are just a symbol. They're, they're, they're valuable in a practical way. They're also a symbol of access and availability. I agree. And I don't more think, PAs. You know, unfortunately, Sanders, she, she didn't have any credibility left, especially after the Mueller report, where she confirmed that she was making things up from the podium. She had no credibility left. So the bar's been set this low, this low. Mm. It can only go up from here. I want to get you both on this. Stephanopoulos interview. Um, we've already talked about what Trump said, why it was so alarming. Everyone's right. talking about that. But uh, what about the whole, how the whole thing came about? <laughs> I am fascinated by that. Um, looking at it from a media perspective, yeah. George Stephanopoulos got 30 hours with the president. He traveled with him. He went to Iowa. Right, he was right. in the Oval Office. That is a lot of access. Yes, I think it's part of a re-election strategy. Yeah, we've got this rally think, coming up on Tuesday. But, 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 but from... Stephanopoulos' point of view, do you think he made the most of that access? I think he provided the president uh, with a, a microphone, let him talk and talk and talk, yeah, yeah. challenge him at the appropriate times, and the public's better off for that. What do you well, think? look, first of all, uh, whoever has the power of edit wins. So if you shoot 30 hours, you get to pick what's going to be out there, so you automatically right. win. Second of all, um, People aren't there saying, I really want more Donald Trump, so why they had to do this, I don't know. <laughs> if, I was, if I was at the White House, I would have said, yeah, let's give him access. You know what? Ten minutes 
of exclusive access is, is a lot of time this with is, the president. This is a variation and, and I, on a, an argument I'm hearing mostly from folks on Fox. Take a listen. Setting aside the question of why you would have George Stephanopoulos standing over the president in the Oval Office, I, I don't know who approved that. Uh, but what about this notion of accepting foreign intel about an opponent? Is that a risk for President Trump getting pulled back into Mueller? Again, why he was put in that situation is beyond me. I'm not yep. here to defend Trump's interview with Stephanopoulos. Why would you have given an interview to Stephanopoulos in the first place? Is a very good question. I mean, this is so interesting because it's a, it's a ver you're saying maybe 10 minutes would have been sufficient, not 30 hours. They're saying, why even let him in a room with George Stephanopoulos, which is odd because it seems to me an admission that Stephanopoulos is smarter than Trump. And so Trump was sort of in a risky position there. No, it's like being stuck in an elevator with somebody for 30 hours. You're going to find something that they don't want you to know. I I'm just telling you. I think that's what you. they were saying. The truth of the matter is Trump is fine in doing interviews. It's just that giving that much access. I remember Stephanopoulos calling me after he'd done an interview with one of my clients. Yeah. You're going to be mad. It was a bad interview. And I said, what happened? <laughs> he right. goes, I kept asking questions and they kept answering. That was on me. Uh, that wasn't on my client. That wasn't on Stephanopoulos. That was on me for allowing unlimited access because that's the world we now live in, that it's mm. stumped the speaker more than I, let's find the truth. I get it from a conservative, but mm -hmm. for advocates for the public and the public's right to know, if you're arguing against information and interviews, then you're losing. Right. And, and this White House has oftentimes been losing. Uh, I think what those hosts on Fox were saying, the subtext was, just stay on Fox. Just stay with your friends. Just talk to your friends. It's working for you. Obviously, it's not working for him from an approval rating standpoint, yeah. but it's a safe space. And that's what he did at the end of the week. He called into his safe space right. for a 50-minute long interview. With Brian. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And yeah. only once in a while will we see these more challenging interviews. Interesting. And thank you both uh, so much for having this conversation, John Brian. Uh, don't miss Reliable Sources. Tomorrow, Brian will be joined by 2020 candidate Andrew Yang. And I'll be joined by my candidate of the week next. Stick around. I want to see if you agree with this premise. It increasingly feels like the Democratic Party has pushed moderates and blue dog Democrats out in favor of far left progressives. Even Democrats who say they're moderates, well, they still sound a lot like progressives. Joe Biden is finding this out the hard way, testing and retesting that line on every issue from criminal justice reform to abortion. Well, another Democrat in the 2020 field is also trying to capture the moderate Democratic voter with a progressive twist. Congressman Tim Ryan of Ohio wants to reach blue-collar, Midwestern and Rust Belt voters, including tens of thousands of people who voted for Trump in 2016. He's my candidate of the week. Thank you, Congressman Ryan, for joining me tonight. Thank you. Okay, I want to hear it from your mouth because the press has positioned you as a moderate. Is that how you see yourself? I'm not, I mean, I'm not going to get in the labels. I consider myself a, a progressive, but my focus is on economics. My focus is on the working class people, the forgotten communities, the forgotten workers who haven't been able to make ends meet. And how do we bust up this system where GM gets a bailout, GM gets a tax cut, banks get the bailout, banks get the tax cut, and meanwhile the workers get the shaft. That to yeah. me is what it means to be an American and in fighting for the working class forgotten people. I don't yeah. know where that falls in the, in the political spectrum these days, but that's what my focus is. 
and I get that, but you know, for for voters, um, mm -hmm. labels matter, and you know, campaigning and and running running a presidential campaign, labels labels do either help or hurt you. But as I look down at your positions, you know, I'm not I'm not sure what they say. Just just shorthanding it, you're not a fan of tax cuts. You support a single payer health care system. You've swung left on guns and abortion in recent years. So how do you think you differ from your 23 other Democratic opponents in this race? I differ because the last 45 years of my life I spent at the epicenter of deindustrialization. I've represented a congressional mm. district uh, that is the epicenter of the infant mortality rate, epicenter of the opiate uh, crisis in the United States, epicenter of the health care crisis in the United States, epicenter yeah. of the mental health crisis in the United States. So I know what working class families are going through. I know what the working poor are going through. Yeah. And I believe this election, the Democrats want to nominate somebody and must nominate somebody who deeply understands the economic struggles that people are going through, SE, yeah. or we're not going to be able to beat Donald Trump. And if, if you, people are supportive of that idea of this robust economic message, they need to go to timryanforamerica.com and support this campaign because yeah. that's what I'm going to be talking about. And I, I get that, and I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. And, and this is a, uh, the point I'm trying to make. I, I get the feeling that people like to use the term moderate now just to refer to sort of a rhetorical style. Biden. Biden speaks the language of blue-collar voters. And I know you do, too, yeah. from a very authentic yeah. place. And I yeah. want people to know, actually, you delivered one of the best lines I've ever heard in politics on my show maybe a year ago, and maybe you've used it again, but you said Democrats need to reach the voters who shower after work, not before. Do you think right. the ability right. to just not condescend to blue-collar voters, is that what we mean by moderate now? I, I think you're right. I think sometimes those those uh, ideas get conflated into that yeah. about being for the blue collar, for people that take a shower after work, for people that work with their hands. And what I want to say to Democrats is I think we're, the perception is that we're a coastal party. The perception yes. is that we're an Ivy League party. And the reality of it is there's there's tent cities of homeless people in L.A. and there's waitresses who can't make it make ends meet in New York. And there's people in the fishing industry in the Gulf of Mexico who can't make it. And right. there's farmers in Iowa who haven't made a profit in five years. So talking to all of those people and pulling that uh, FDR New Deal coalition back together is how yeah. you're going to be able to stop the things happening like we started this interview about bailouts for the corporations yeah. and a concentration of wealth. That only happens when the farmers and the fishermen and the factory workers and yeah. the waitresses and the people that are homeless all come together around an economic idea. I can bring that. And you know what happens, S.E., if, if I'm the nominee? The center of gravity in the Democratic Party shifts from the, from the coasts yeah. to middle America, to yeah. Ohio, to Youngstown, Ohio. Well, and that changes everything because then we can go after Senate races in Kentucky, Senate races in South Carolina where we have uh, good candidates running. I mean, we could start uh, flipping yeah. this political system upside down. Well, and uh, yeah, and that's why I think this lane is so important because I don't believe the Green New Deal and socialism and abolishing ICE are the ways to beat Donald Trump. I think those are the ways to lose to him. Are you going to take that message to your right. Democratic opponents on the debate stage? Are you going to say socialism isn't the answer? The Green New Deal goes goes too far. Abolishing ICE is crazy. 
Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, I'm for a Green New Deal because we've got to deal with climate, but we also need to make sure that we are aligning environmental incentives with financial incentives and get the power of the free market to work to help solve this problem. For you know, when you're talking about the Green New Deal and reversing climate change, we've got to figure out how we come together. It can't be all government mm -hmm. or no government. It's got to mm -hmm. be the blend of the public-private partnerships, like when we went to the moon, like when we built the greatest middle class in the history of the world. We had private sector going strong, and we had workers that were well represented in unions who were getting cut in on the deal. And next thing you know, we've got the greatest middle class ever. So I want to bring us back to everybody's at the table, everybody has value, yeah. and we can actually create a system if the yeah. government gets working properly where everybody mm -hmm. can win. And again, Tim Ryan for America.com, see, this is happening. I'm on this debate stage because this economic message is resonating with people. Well, Congressman, presidential candidate Tim Ryan, I thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Really appreciate it. Thank, thanks, Essie. Well, they couldn't play nice forever. The 2020 Democratic candidates are starting to turn up the heat on each other, and that's leading some voters to fear a 2016 repeat. Valid? I'll discuss that next. And a little later, I'll speak to the only Republican bold enough to challenge the president on the campaign trail, at least. In the red file tonight, it didn't take long for the 2020 Democratic candidates to turn on one another. It's been relatively polite so far, but pointed nonetheless. Here's former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders squaring off on socialism. I and other progressives will face massive attacks from those who attempt to use the word socialism as a slur. Democrats must say loudly and clearly that we are not socialists. Uh, if we do not, we will end up helping to reelect the worst president in this country's history. Candidates have also tried their hand at maligning frontrunner Joe Biden. Take a listen. Democrats can no more turn the clock back to the 1990s than Republicans can return us to the 1950s. And we should not try. We cannot return to the past. We cannot simply be about defeating Donald Trump. So is so, Joe Biden a return to the past? He is. And, and that cannot be who we are going forward. Well, here was Biden's response to some of that. Folks, I'm not naive. You know, uh, uh, some say that this is an old-fashioned way of doing things. Well, if it's old-fashioned way of doing things, we're in real trouble, man. This is obviously to be expected in a primary with 23 candidates, but some are worried that this will only produce a battered and unpopular nominee when it's all over. With me now is former Florida gubernatorial candidate and CNN political commentator Andrew Gillum. Uh, welcome, Andrew. There was some good reporting from Dave Weigel out of Iowa this week. I want to read you what one voter said to him. She said... I was a Bernie supporter last time, but I do not appreciate the negativity and only Bernie attitude. I'm afraid that we're going to wind up where we were last time, people not coming out to vote if their candidate's not the nominee. What's your take on that? And are her concerns justified? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll say those are not my concerns. Those are not my fears. We are still early in this primary process. But yeah. even in the polls that that we've seen at this point, what Democrats are united behind, even if they're not united behind the same candidate, we're united behind defeating Donald Trump. 
Uh, and, and so I got to hmm. tell you, I, I don't I have my favorites, but it almost doesn't matter who the Democratic nominee uh, is that Democrats, I believe, are going to unite behind each other, beginning with the hmm. candidates. But I think the rank and file want to win. Well, in particular, the anti-Biden rhetoric that he's out of touch or stuck in the past, which is another way of calling him old. He's currently the front runner. If he's the nominee, do you think that that kind of friendly fire may really weaken him and, in fact, give Trump some ammo? Well, I mean, he's the current front runner, and I don't know if yep. that front runner status uh, will last. Sure. Uh, we have our first debate, uh, what, in two weeks, uh, beginning down here in Florida, and then we'll be together in Detroit for uh, the CNN debate. Uh, so what I would have to say, <coughs> excuse me about that, is that uh -huh. this, um, this race has a long time to go. Uh, and I have to tell you, every Democrat that I talk to, regardless yeah. of their own individual personal favorites, uh, they want to beat Donald Trump, uh, and they're fired up about it. Yeah, but do you worry that the criticism of Biden, that he's out of touch or maybe too old for this, do you, do you worry that that's giving Trump some really good ammunition to use, either in the primary or if he's the eventual nominee? Do you think that's fair well, criticism? I think Donald Trump will come up with his own ammunition. And it, quite frankly, doesn't even matter uh, what we say about ourselves. Donald Trump is going to continue to uh, spout off the rhetoric that he has. What I hope we don't do is that we as Democrats don't begin to fight this uh, domination on Republican tropes and on Republican turf. Uh, we need to define this race for ourselves. Talk about the ideas that are going to help people get access to health care, uh, mm. ways that they can live on, uh, uh, family leave, and the like. If we, if we hoist this race... Uh, as a response, a call in response to Donald Trump, then we've already lost. We've got to play on our own uh, field here. So wh what about some of those ideas? Do you worry that a primary that seems fairly obsessed with whether socialism is a good or a bad thing will be a problem for the party in the general? Yeah. So let me just say, first of all, if we are debating terminology, then we've already lost. Mm. Uh, I am not interested in anybody defining uh, one definition of a term over another. If, mm. if, if what voters are walking away with it is a debate around terminology, then that means they're not hearing us on the policy. Uh, they're not hearing what it is that we're going to do for yeah. their lives and to make their lives better. And so my cautionary note, with all respect to those out there in the middle of that back and forth, is uh, forget the terminology. Let's talk about how it is. Is, hmm. These topics, these issues are going to affect everyday people. So Bernie Sanders has faced a, a lot of criticism um, for stirring divisions in the party, both back in 2016, uh, but also again now. He, he uh, hired a left-wing columnist, a tack dog, to, to trash the Democratic opponents for him. Do you worry that Sanders is putting himself before the party, before this idea that you speak of, unifying the party coming together? I, I have not seen any evidence that if uh, Senator Sanders doesn't get the nomination, uh, that he won't be uh, fully out there embracing, endorsing, supporting whoever does get the nomination. Um, we're in a nomination battle. There's going to be a competition of ideas. Supporters are going to feel strongly about the candidate that they want to win. But mm. I'll return to the earlier point in our conversation, which is uh, mostly Democrats want to win. Uh, if this is if a Bernie or a Biden or Bus or a Harris or bus, uh, then quite frankly, we got bigger worries out mm. there if that's the concern. I think that this is yeah. going to be a party that ultimately unites behind the candidate who, uh, who mm. makes its way through the nomination. Andrew Gillum, always great to get your perspective. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Essie. Okay, some have called it quixotic, others very necessary. The primary challenger to Donald Trump joins me next.
Pat Buchanan, Ted Kennedy, Pete McCloskey, Eugene McCarthy, Estes Kefauver, what do they all have in common? They're men who did not become president despite mounting primary challenges to incumbent presidents. It's a hard thing to do, but also one could argue an important thing to do, especially when a sitting president is deeply unpopular. Well, there's only one guy who's up to the task this go-round, at least so far. And though he faces an uphill battle, he isn't all that bothered. Joining me now, 2020 Republican primary challenger to President Trump, former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld. Uh, welcome. Thank you, S.E. I want to read you. Maybe you've seen it. I don't know. I didn't ask you before. But I want to read you a letter to the editor that appeared this week in the Deseret News, which is a Utah paper. I know it well. Carol Schirmerhorn of Ogden, Utah, writes... There are currently two candidates running for the Republican nomination, President Trump and Bill Weld. Trump, because of his outrageous actions and comments, gets copious notice in the news media across the political spectrum. Bill Weld, although he is a more honest, honorable, and qualified candidate, much more fit to be president than Trump, gets a mere mention every now and again, even though he works diligently to campaign. It's well past time that Bill Weld should get the attention he deserves. Look, it's no small deal that you're mounting a primary challenge to the sitting president of the United States. Do you think you're getting the attention you deserve? Yeah, I'm getting plenty of attention. And I might point out that all five of those presidents that those five candidates ran against lost. So making a primary challenge against the president historically has had uh, an impact. And I do predict that I will win the Utah primary against President Trump, who received exactly 14 percent of the vote. Well, in with the Utah Carol primary. in your corner. Yeah, absolutely. She should run your Utah operation. Right. Um, well, others like Larry Hogan and John Kasich have opted not to do this. Why do you think, given Trump's weaknesses, um, others haven't gone where you're going? I, I think people think nothing's going to change, and that's wrong. I've been around long enough to know that six months is an eternity in national politics, and I think it's going to sink in on people that this is a president who thinks the law does not apply to him and who's a stranger to the truth, uh, and uh, they're not going to like that at the end of the day. So, so to those who would say, this has no shot, this isn't going anywhere, you say, no, this is real. This is real, and the response I get uh, on the ground in New Hampshire and everywhere else, frankly, uh -huh. is that uh, the president uh, is not popular in the hinterlands. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe he's very popular with the Republican state committees because they're the Trump organization. Right. But my, I'm, my strategy is not to try to charm them. It's to enlarge the electorate, get those millennials, suburban women, yeah. Gen Xers voting, and then you're going to have a, a vote that's very different than what you see in the polls today. He says he's doing great in the polls. That's questionable. But you're saying... I'm the ground when you go talk to people in places like New Hampshire, you're hearing a different I, story. I, I shook 240 hands in three diners in New Hampshire a couple of weeks ago. I didn't encounter one Trump voter, hmm. and they weren't acting either. <laughs> so you're up against some pretty serious headwinds, um, history being among them. But another reason people don't primary sitting presidents often is that going against the infrastructure <clears throat> of the party, in this case, uh, uh, case the RNC, all that money and resources, et cetera, that's tough. Are you feeling that challenge, that no, obstacle? Not, not so much. Uh, you know, the, the Republican state parties uh, often are quite weak. They are just a reflection mm. of, in fact, they are the Trump committees in each uh, state. 
The New Hampshire uh, Republican Party, for example, uh, is a few Trump loyalists, but uh, it's, you know, that, that state is 65-35 pro-choice on reproductive rights. Mm. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not a hard-boiled state at all. It's, yeah. uh, it's a New England Republican state, and I aim to make it mine. I, as a New Englander, you know, I know what you mean. Um, so speaking of New Hampshire, how important is that state for your strategy? Uh, I think it's very important. First in the nation primary is uh, the source of a lot of uh, New Hampshire's clout uh, in this right. country. And uh, the Trump folks tried to abolish the primary this year. That fell with a great huge thud, mm. uh, as it should have. But I'm going to campaign hard elsewhere in New England and in the mid-Atlantic states. Uh, next stop, uh, California, Oregon, Washington, then the Intermountain West, including Utah, where I spent a lot of time in last cycle, the Southwest, and last stop will be the Rust Belt. A lot of those states, uh, the Republicans haven't done so well since Mr. Trump surprised by winning them. So. If, you, if you don't win New Hampshire, for example, you're going to continue on through all of those early states? Oh, absolutely. States. And the geographic push would be what I indicated, going mm -hmm. down uh, New England uh, to the mid-Atlantic states. Lots of votes there. Mm -hmm. Lots of votes in Carolina. Uh, California, yeah. which is an early, early primary. Now, They've yeah. moved to March. And uh, yeah. California and Donald Trump agree on precisely nothing. <laughs> and, and I've spent a lot of time out there with uh, Pete Wilson. I was his national finance chair when he ran for president, close with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. A lot of states I have uh, uh, ancient uh, uh, governor networks from old friends. I'm sure you do. I know the Vermont <laughs> governor is, um, has nice things to say about you as well. Right. Governor Weld, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, I appreciate Essie. it. Pleasure. Okay, we'll be right back. As we try to reduce our use of single-use plastics, some are going to strange lengths to make us more environmentally mindful. In Italy, the town of Capri is ba banning visitors from bringing non-recyclable plastic items onto the island. No bags, plastic cutlery, plates, etc. Even your plastic water bottle will be prohibited soon, with the island handing out free water flasks this summer. Cities like San Francisco have imposed a ban on plastic bags, including those bags you use for your produce in grocery stores, because putting your fruits and vegetables directly onto bacteria-covered shopping carts and dirty checkout conveyor belts, well, that's a much better idea. But in Canada, one supermarket is really turning the screws on plastic-using consumers. If you don't come into East West Market in Vancouver with your own reusable bag, you may leave with one of these. These bags, like Into the Weird Adult Video Emporium, the Colon Care Co-op, and Dr. Toe's Wart Ointment Wholesale, are meant to shame its own customers away from using plastic bags by giving them plastic bags, all while creating a PR blitz that will almost certainly incentivize teenagers and adult mischief makers alike to rush out and get their own wart ointment and sex store bags from the supermarket. In fact, East West Market owner David Lee Quen told The Guardian newspaper, quote, some of the customers want to collect them because they love the idea of it. I'm not sure this one's all that well thought out. Okay, before I go, a programming quick note tomorrow night at 9. See what happens when victims and offenders of violent crimes meet face-to-face -face on the new CNN original series, The Redemption Project with Van Jones. That's followed by United Shades of America with W. Kamau Bell Sunday at 10 p.m. The Van Jones Show is next. Stick around.
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.